This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 115 in its entirety. It's a longer text. If you need to sit down, uh, we totally understand. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heaven, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So obviously, uh, Psalm 115 was written for the Israelites at some point uh, in their story where they were in conversation or in debate with the surrounding nations as to whose God was really God. You can pick this up uh, from verses 2 and following. And we can't know for sure exactly when this psalm was written, and we don't know into what context uh, this psalm is written, but, but if you know Israel's history, if you know the history of the Old Testament people of God, you know that they were constantly tempted uh, to, to worship and trust in idols, uh, the gods, lowercase g, of the nations uh, surrounding them. And actually, they, they weren't just constantly tempted uh, to idolatry, but if you know the Old Testament story at all, you know that they, like us, consistently fell into sin, consistently fell into idolatry, consistently fell into what the Bible over and over calls adultery. They, they trusted in other gods instead of or along with the Lord. And so Psalm 115 falls into the genre of praise psalms. It's another psalm of praise. And so right now in our sermon series, we're, we're doing a series on the Psalter, and we're studying uh, one or two or three uh, psalms from each of the major genres in the Psalter. And if you're with us, if you've been with us, you, you know that the distinguishing elements of a praise psalm, uh, they're all here. There's a call to praise. If you look, it's implicitly given in verse 1. It's explicitly stated uh, in verse 18. You also know that there are reasons for praise given throughout uh, the psalm. But what's most interesting about Psalm 115 and what's going to take our time and be our focus today is this warning against idolatry in verses 2 through 8. You see, let's say it this way. Our hearts, too, whether we realize it or not, our hearts, too, are in constant conversation with our world. 
And we're in constant debate whether we realize it or not as to who God is. We're constantly trying to figure out whose God is ultimate, our God or the God of this world. And Psalm 115 is not just to us yet another call to praise with reasons for praise, but it's an ongoing warning to us to not trust in the idols of our age as rampant as they are, but to trust more and more wholeheartedly in the Lord. And so what I want us to see this morning is three things. I want us to see first that we trust in idols. I want us to see second that uh, the reason for why we trust in idols. And then third, I want us to see how we become less idolatrous. So that we trust in idols, why we trust in idols, and how we become less idolatrous. So first, that we trust in idols. Uh, To start off, you need to know that my assumption about all of us is that we're idolaters, that we're all uh, idolatrous. You, You may say that's ridiculous. If I had a silver or gold image or icon in my room or on the dash of my car in this economy, I would certainly sell it and be done with it. I am not an idolater. Well, the Bible actually says that there are many diverse realities called idols, not just physical icons and images. Paul refers uh, to the following list as uh, items of idolatry in Colossians 3. This is our call to worship this morning. Listen to this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. Paul says the entire list is idolatry. Paul says the same exact thing in Ephesians 5.5. Not physical things, but realities that we long for in our heart are known biblically as idols. Not just physical icons, but the lust for and the participation in sex outside of God's design. The Bible says idolatry. Not just actual statues, but covetousness, a yearning for created things that we don't yet have. The Bible calls that idolatry. In Romans 1, Paul defines idolatry as worshiping and serving and looking for life in any created thing instead of worshiping and serving and looking for life in the Creator. And so once your mind opens up to the idea that idolatry isn't just the physical statues of a more traditional society, but it's also the ideas and the pursuits, the passions and the values of a more modern society, you come to realize that indeed we're all idolaters. We all trust in idols to some degree. Listen to these three definitions of an idol. An idol is anything other than God that we believe we have to have to have meaning, life, and joy. An idol is anything other than God that we have now, that the thought of losing in the future makes us think that life wouldn't be worth living in the future without it. An idol is anything besides God that we don't have now, but that we long for, where we're convinced if we could just get that reality into our life, our life will finally be full and complete and even real. Humans have the extraordinary capacity of taking any created thing and making an idol out of it could be physical appearance, could be success, could be sex, could be money, could be fame, romantic love, a good reputation or even a bad reputation, could be a vacation, could be a particular retirement, could be a particular seat on a particular plane, could be a particular house on a particular street, could be a particular countertop on a particular cabinet. The Bible says we have this extraordinary capacity to take created things and make idols of them. Biblically, idolatry is the taking of a created thing and giving to it the affection that only God the Creator deserves. 
Also, idolatry is very often the taking of a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Getting a degree, getting a promotion, getting married, having kids, eating a certain healthy way. We can even idolize our own healing from the wounds we've received in this life. We can take these good things, these things from God, elevate them to the place of God, and give our lives to them. And so often our world will use the language of passion and drive. Those are positive terms. Or the world will negatively uh, say that we have an, an obsession or an infatuation about something. And the Bible would take those four words that our world calls passion in our life, and the Bible would say it's, it's idolatry. One more biblical proof that idolatry is far more than just icons and images. Jesus in Matthew 6 says this, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says you cannot serve, obey, follow, worship God and mammon. Mammon is a Semitic word for money and possessions. I just want you to notice how Jesus uses Old Testament worship language for money and for things. And I want you to notice how Jesus says it's possible to, ele- to elevate a created good thing to the level of divinity and then look for ultimate life in that created thing and sacrifice your life for that created thing. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. So first, that we trust in idols. Second, why we trust in idols. If you look at verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 115, it gives us a massive clue as to why we're idolatrous. Verse 8 says, Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 11, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Whenever the Bible repeats something three times like this, that tends to tell you this is a very important part of the text. And the text is telling uh, the Old Testament people of God and now us, the New Testament people of God, is telling us that our God is worthy of trust because he's two things repeated three times. He's a help and he's a shield. Listen carefully. The text is telling us why we're tempted to idolatry. The text is telling us why we're tempted to make too much of created things. The text is telling us why we take good things and make them ultimate things. The text is shining light into the deep parts of our heart, and it's telling us that our idolatry flows out of this desire to find a help and a shield. The Bible is not beating us up for needing a help and a shield. The Bible presumes that we need this. The Bible says that Yahweh is this. And the Bible is telling us that our idols can never be this. In summary, I'm going to unpack this, but in summary, here's why we're idolaters. Because at our deepest core, we all know that we're incomplete. And that we need what the English word here calls a help. And we're also idolaters because at our core, we all know that we're exposed and that we need a shield. Now, I know, I know that this is deep. I know that it is not simple, but I want you to know that if you're willing to reflect on this and dialogue over this, I think this can be very illuminating for our lives. Idolatry is motivated by looking for a completion and protection in anything and anyone other than the Lord. 
All right, let's, let's dig into this. This is going to help us understand why we worship created things. In the Hebrew, this word for help is the word ezer or ezer. It's E-Z-E-R when transliterated into the English. And it's really crucial for you to understand what this word means and for how it's used in the Bible. Help is probably not a very good translation. The only other being in the Bible ever called an ezer besides God is Eve, Adam's wife. In the earliest chapters of Genesis, Adam was sinless and he was in relationship with God and yet he was alone and he was incomplete and he was unable to accomplish the chores that God had given him. And God said about this perfect man in perfect relationship with him, this is not good. I'll make an easer, a help, a helpmate for him. We hear the word help or helper and we think subservient. But the Hebrew word ezer is more crucial than that. It's more like the word completion. What's the point? At one level, Eve was the completion Adam needed to live life and accomplish the chores that God had given him. Psalm 115 and multiple times in the Old Testament is telling us that at a deeper level, we will only be complete, we will only be content, we will only be at rest. We will only have life as God designed it. When we're in relationship with him, in relationship with the one who made us, who loves us, who died to have us. The text is telling us that we were created to be completed by God himself through our relationship with him. And in our sin, humanity separated itself from God. And ever since, humanity has tried to fill that void with created things. And so the text is telling us why we're idolaters. First, at the core, whether we know it or not, whether we're aware or not, at the core, every human being is aching for completion. A completion that only God can be. The Lord is your help. He's your helpmate. He's your completion. He's your, if you will, your soulmate. You were created for the Lord to be your soul's eternal spouse. You were created for the Lord to be your soul's eternal spouse. And apart from him, we feverishly look for completion in just about anything. This is why we so passionately and so inordinately pursue life and success and money and sex and pleasure and perfection and grades and fame and reputation and approval. It's because we know we lack and we're desperate for completion. But also he's a shield. The Lord is their shield, rep repeated three times. So, so, so we're also motivated to trust in idols because we feel at our core this exposure and this vulnerability. And whether we're conscious of it or not, we sense that, that, that we're vulnerable to some hostilities outside of us that are stronger than us. And so we look to created things uh, to not only complete us, but we look to created things to protect us. And so I, I think the best way to illustrate how we seek uh, protection in our idols is to talk about the way the Bible talks about the love of money. Obviously, anything can become an idol, but money is a huge idol in the Bible and in our lives and in our culture. And the Bible is going to teach that you can be motivated to look for life in money by looking for completion in it and by also looking for protection in it. Just listen to the language of Proverbs 18, uh, verses 10 and 11. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. 
But a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. I mean, do you see that? Wealth, first of all, is used in parallel ways with the Lord as if it's on par with God. And then while the Lord is proactively and positively and rightfully stated as a safe tower and one who protects, Proverbs tells us that some rich people will run into their money for protection. And in their mind's eye, their money is a strong city and a high wall. And so the text is telling us, and Proverbs 18 is telling us, that sometimes we're tempted to trust in money as a shield. But we're also tempted to trust in money as a help. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then Jesus goes on and he tells the parable of a man uh, who finally says to himself, Self, you have enough money. And what does the man tell himself to do? Eat, drink, and be merry. Some of us want money so we can feel impervious. Some of us want money so we can have experiences. Uh, The first group, usually my parents' age, are looking for a shield. The second group, usually my age, is looking for a helpmate. You see that? We're all idolaters, and to some degree or another, we are worshiping created things. But why? Because ever since the fall, when man walked away from God, we've had a God-sized need for intimacy and for protection. And whether we're aware of it or not, we will spend our lives worshiping created things in an effort to fill that creator-sized hole. We will spend our life worshiping created things in an effort to satisfy those divine-sized needs. You can't supersize created things enough to fill a God-sized hole. It can't work. So first, that we trust in idols. We all, to some extent, look for life in created things. Second, why we trust idols? Because we ache for completion and we yearn for protection and we're constantly tempted to trust in the world's solution for life instead of trusting in Jesus and the gospel. And finally for today, how we become less idolatrous. I think the best way of understanding Psalm 115 is to see that it's all about becoming less idolatrous. Okay, Israel was constantly tempted to trust in the idols and the gods, lowercase g, of the surrounding nations. But not only that, as we've already said, the Old Testament tells us that over and over, Israel fell into that temptation. And the purpose of Psalm 115, at some point in their story, the purpose of Psalm 115 was either a priest or or a prophet or a king writing to Israel and, and leading Israel more and more away from idolatry and more and more towards the worship and the praise of the one true God. Psalm 115 is all about decreasing our trust in idols and increasing our trust in Yahweh. And so as an effort to decrease our idols, Psalm 115 can be summarized in two words, awareness and praise. We will become less idolatrous, more free, more alive when we become aware of our idols and when we praise the one true God more and more. Okay, so many pastors through the years have used the terms carve out, carve out and crowd out. And I don't know exactly who to give credit to because I've heard it from so many pastors, but the credit is not mine. The idea is this. You can think of the human heart like a field. Every Christian's heart at the core, Romans 8 tells us that they love God, they rest in God, they find life in God, and at their core, they obey God. This is every Christian's heart. If their heart were a field, this would be symbolized by nice, plush, uh, healthy, uh, green grass. 
But at the same time, the Bible tells us that every Christian still has places in their heart where there are weeds, where there's unbelief in God, where there's trust in idols, where there's resultant sin. And in our efforts to become less idolatrous, pastors have been saying for hundreds of years we can carve out and we can crowd out. We can first carve out. That is, we can see the weeds and we can extract them. But second, we can crowd out. That is, we can grow the area of our heart that trusts in and praises God. And so what I want to do now is I want to begin to look at Psalm 115, and I want to talk about awareness of our idols that we might carve out, and I want to talk about praising God that we might crowd out. So first, awareness, carving out. In order to become less idolatrous, there's three steps you have to take. You have to identify your idols. You have to acknowledge their futility. And you have to assess the damages. Identify your idols. Acknowledge their futility. Assess the damages. All right, first. The first step to becoming less idolatrous is to identify your, your idols. You see, once you learn what the Bible says about idols and how pervasive idol theology is in the Bible, once you learn that, it begins to shed tremendous light on humanity in general, and it begins to shed tremendous light on the people you're living life around. And once you realize that everyone, to one degree or another, is looking for life and created things, once you realize that, it's really quite easy to see it. The avid sports fan, the workaholic, the person who excessively blogs about anything, the helicopter mom, most attendees at a Star Trek convention, okay? As soon as you start to realize what the Bible says about idols, things, it's just like a huge light bulb comes on. You have this lens for reality. You have these glasses that you can put on. It is so intriguing to identify everyone else and what their idols are. But I would suggest that we spend a little more time studying our own idols. Ask yourself, what do people say I'm passionate about? What would people say I'm infatuated with? Ask yourself, what makes me excessively sad, excessively angry, excessively elated, excessively anxious? Ask your neighbor. Your neighbor is already seeing you through the lens of idolatry. They're just dying to tell you. Just ask them. What have you been judging me for for all these years? <laughs> when you catch yourself daydreaming, what are you longing for? When you're doing mindless chores like mowing or cleaning, what fills your mind? What do you search the internet for in your downtime? Here, I think this is a great one. Who are you jealous of? Who are you jealous of? The Bible, one way the Bible defines jealousy is an inability to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And so when someone's weeping, if you can't weep with them, or if someone's rejoicing and you can't rejoice with them, the Bible says you're jealous of them. Why? Is it their body, their job, their lover, their parents, their children, their house? What is it? So the first step in awareness, the first step in carving out is for us to identify our idols. But then the second step is to acknowledge their futility, is to acknowledge their ineffectiveness. This is the entire point of verses 4 through 7. Look at your text. In verse 2, the nations taunt, how dumb, I can't see your God. And in verse 3, the psalmist responds, how dumb, we can see your God. And then the futility and the ineffectiveness and the powerlessness of the nation's idols is stated. Their idols are silver and gold. They're created by human hands. 
They have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, hands but don't touch, feet but don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. Listen carefully. Psalm 115 is telling us that idols are ineffective for that which we designed them. They are ineffective for that which we designed them. Nothing can complete us. Nothing can protect us except a restored relationship with God through Christ. Ask yourself, once you and your friends identify any one of your idols, there is a pantheon of idols in every heart. Find one and just ask, is it working? Is it effective? Do I feel more alive? Do I feel more safe? How long will I think that life and peace is just right around the corner? As I thought about my life, I I thought and I realized that I thought my life would begin when I got into high school and could start playing varsity sports. I got there and it didn't satisfy. Then I thought, well, I'm going to have life as soon as I play college sports. I got there and it didn't satisfy. Then graduation, I'm going to be on my own. I got there and it didn't satisfy. Well, it must be business success. It must be money. I got there and it didn't satisfy. Well, then it must be a master's degree got there, it didn't satisfy. Well, it must be a successful pastorate, got there, didn't satisfy. Well, it must be a successful church plant, got there, still not satisfied. Now what? Maui. I already told you. (laughs) I'm going to Maui. (laughs) How many times will I get what I longed for and not be happy before I realize that created things can't make me happy? Uh, Anne Lamott is an author who compares idolatry to greyhounds at a racetrack. How long will I chase the plastic bunny before I say, hey, wait, that's a plastic bunny? How many times will I catch the bunny, devour the plastic bunny, not be satisfied by the bunny, have my insides ripped to shreds from the bunny, only to pick another plastic bunny to chase for a while? Acknowledge the futility of the idol. Isaiah 44 asks this question of an idolatrous people. It says, how did you decide which part of the tree to burn for warmth and which part of the tree to use for cooking? And how did you decide which part of the tree to craft into an idol and worship? The point is this, through mockery, Isaiah is saying this, you can't expect life and divine blessing from a created thing. You can't cook food over one part of the tree and worship another part of the tree. At some point, the emperor has no clothes. It doesn't work. And so to become less idolatrous, to become more alive, to become more free, we have to carve out our idols through awareness. We we have to identify our, our idols, acknowledge their futility, and we have to assess the damages. And by that I mean this, not only do idols not give us life, but they destroy us. Look at verse eight. Those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. What do verses four through seven tell you about idols? Two things. They're lifeless and they're useless. And so anyone who makes them and anyone who trusts in them will become lifeless and useless. The most obvious point is drawn out a little farther down in verse 17. To trust in idols will kill us and to trust in idols will dehumanize us. But also verse 8 is telling us that just like idols, uh, just like idols don't serve the purpose for which they were created and designed, humans who trust in idols won't serve the purpose for which they were created and designed. I'll let you think about that for a second. Idols don't serve the purpose for which they were designed, and those who worship idols don't serve the purpose for which they were designed and created either. Think about it like this. 
If an employee lives for the approval of their boss, they'll never be truly satisfied in an enduring way, and they'll never have the courage to lovingly give the feedback the boss needs in order to grow and develop and succeed. And so that employee will become lifeless and at some point useless because they're no longer doing what they were designed to do. Or if I make work an idol, if I'm driven by success or control or fame, and if I, if I make work my idol, not only will I live my life never living life, but my kids will not have the dad for which God designed for them. I'll miss key events. I'll bring work home either in my heart or on my smartphone. I'll define fatherhood as provision instead of life-on-life discipleship. I'll have the appearance of a child, but the reality of an orphan. And it all starts from thinking success at work will give me happiness. It renders me lifeless while everyone's at home playing and I'm working, and it renders me useless to what I was designed by God to do in my children's life. Those who make them will become like them. Those who trust in them will become like them. Or if I make sex an idol, not only will I never be satisfied, but my wife and the other women I live life around will never be valued, never be served, never be honored, never be loved the way in which God designed me to love them as a man. I become lifeless. I become useless. And the damage is to me and them. Assess the damage. Idols dehumanize us. They make us lifeless just like them, and then idols just like themselves render us useless in the lives of those we're created to serve. There's this great story in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah, God's prophet, and 450 prophets of Baal are having a face-off on Mount Carmel. And both sides believe that their God is actually God. And both sides believe that their God controls the rain, which both sides then believe that their God controls life. And Elijah challenges them and says, let's both set up an altar and let's both set up a sacrifice. And, and whoever's God sends fire from heaven and whoever's God consumes their sacrifice, that God will in that reality prove that they are the God. And then we will all decide to follow that one God. And so as you probably know, Elijah, God's prophet, the Lord's prophet, the God of the Bible's prophet, he wins the battle in convincing fashion. But I want you to consider the actions of the prophets of Baal. All day long they cried out. All day long they prayed. All day long they danced around to no avail. The whole time, if they're anything like me, they're absolutely certain that they're just about to get it right and that Bell is just about to reward them and Bell is just about to satisfy them. They just need to stay on course and do it a little better. And at noon, Elijah starts to mock them. He's like, hey, maybe Bell's daydreaming. Maybe he's off on a vacation. Maybe he's asleep. He says, maybe he's relieving himself taking a dump. He's just mocking them. And then after three years of no rain, exactly as God said, after a morning of crying out and dancing around and being mocked, listen to verses 28 and 29. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them, lifeless and useless. And as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time of the offering of the oblation, that is evening. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. 
Carve out. Identify your idols. Humbly acknowledge their futility. Soberly assess the damages. Finally, most importantly for for today, to become less idolatrous, we not only need to carve out through awareness, but we also need to crowd out through praise. I want to reiterate our illustration. Several weeks ago, my friends and I put down sod in a large section of my backyard. You're already not excited about this for me, I know. You're already making fun of me in your heart and mind, which is okay. And and I'm, I'm pretty sure that somewhere along the way, like instantly, I cut it too low and I cut it too fast and the sod died. So in other words, like reading the instructions, decided not to do that. And so now there are little sprouts of St. Augustine coming up from the roots, but at the same time, there are weeds popping up all over my backyard. In order for me to have the beautiful backyard that I want for my kids to be able to play in and have fun in, what will I have to do? I will spend a couple years carving out, rooting up the weeds and getting up as much of them as I can. And I will have to spend the years crowding out. And in other words, I'll have to push out the available space for weeds by helping the grass grow. Jesus' sermon ministry was summarized by two words in the Gospels, repent and believe. Carve out, repentance. Crowd out, faith, praise. What does Psalm 115 tell us about the Lord's praiseworthiness? Okay, I want to just see a few things, and then I actually want us to begin praising him in song and beginning to do what the passage calls us to. But look up at verse 1. I want to go quickly. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Praiseworthiness. Remember that God's core identity is this, love that is steadfast regardless of what you do, and faithfulness that is there for you regardless of how faithless you are. That's praiseworthy. Look at verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does everything he wants. Praise God that he wants to save and bless and love and persevere an idolatrous people like us. He does what he pleases. Verse 12, he wants to bless us. If you're reading the Old Testament CBR passages, uh, these words, please and bless, may sound familiar to you. They just jumped off the page to me when I began to think about this this week. Do you remember Balak? the leader of Moab, he hired Balaam and he wanted Balaam to, pr- to pronounce curses upon God's people, upon Israel. And you remember how Balaam kept saying to him, I can only do what I see the Lord doing. I'm a prophet of God. I can only pro- proclaim what the Lord wants me to proclaim. And every time Balaam would prophesy over Israel, he would seek the Lord's face. He would seek the Lord's guidance. And every time, instead of cursing them, he would bless them for God. In chapter 24, Balak, again, the Moab leader, is again trying to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 24, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless, he did not go as at the other times to look for omens. In other words, Balaam knew by this point that asking God whether or not he wanted to bless or curse Israel was superfluous and a waste of time. By this point, he's like, I know God's heart. It pleases the Lord to bless Israel. Israel, the nation that rebelled against God in chapter 21, and the nation that's going to cheat on God in chapter 25. I don't even need to go ask him. I know that the answer is going to be a blessing. That's praiseworthy. 
But of course, God's praiseworthiness is most magnificently expressed in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the ultimate help and shield? Who is the ultimate completion and protection? The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus preferred to die and go through hell in order to have us forever instead of existing without us forever. Think about that. Jesus knew that we needed him to be complete, and so he came to earth. He lived the perfect life. He died to unite himself to us. He was raised again so that we can forever be his bride, forever be his bride, him as the bridegroom, him as the help, we as the ones in need of completion, him the one giving completion. He is your help. Through his sacrificial love, Jesus gives himself and he gives us the completion we ache for. But look, even more, he's our shield. He's our protection. Think about it. In our sin, there were two realities stronger than us, hostile towards us. The evil one and the holy one who could not stand the evil within us. And Jesus at the cross shielded us from the wrath of God that was poured out for our sins. And Jesus redeemed us so that he can protect us and so that he can shield us from Satan until he vanquishes Satan forever. Carve out and crowd out. We have a lot to praise God for. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is your help and he is your shield. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, we praise you for this passage that yet again shows us our sin but your supreme grace. We thank you for how this humbles us in our idolatry, but exalts us in your love. We praise you for how we are yet again called to repentance, but led into faith. Jesus, we ask that you would give us now more humility because of our wayward hearts, but give us more confidence because of your heart. Would you open our eyes to see you and you, would you bring praises forth from us that we might give our hearts to praising you and trusting in you, that less of our hearts might be available for trusting in idols and praising idols. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and work powerfully in our hearts and our midst. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.